every sin, not one sin you have ever committed will go unpunished. It will either be punished on Christ, on the cross, because you have embraced Him as Lord and Savior, or it will be punished personally on you forever. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Consider the future seven-year time span known as the Great Tribulation. What is the reason for so much destruction? Why would a loving God pour out His wrath on humanity? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 12 of his current series titled The Future According to Jesus. As we once again examine what the Bible has to say about the time between Jesus' ascension and His second coming, Tom will continue to look at the final three years of the Great Tribulation. While there will have been no other time as chaotic in history, you'll be reminded about God's faithfulness to His elect, even during difficult times, even those in the Great Tribulation, and you as well. If you're in Christ, you can look forward to hope within the horror, comfort amidst the chaos. Let's join Tom Pennington right now for more here on The Word Unleashed. John tells us that the beast is at war with the saints. That world leader will be at war with the saints. And his system, his religious system, is described as a woman who is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There will be incredible persecution of Israel and especially of those who come to faith in Jesus. So these new Jewish believers will will need to run. And they will heed Jesus' warning here in Mark and Matthew's gospel, and they will run. And God will providentially protect them. You can read about it in Revelation 12, verses 13 and 14. In that text, Israel is compared to a woman, one who gave birth to the Messiah, and she is somehow, that remaining third that survived, is somehow given divine assistance to survive the onslaught of Antichrist. They are given wings, and we don't know exactly what that means, but divine assistance. As Jesus contemplates those days when Antichrist sets up the abomination of desolation in the temple, Notice what he says in verse 17. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Here you see the compassion of our Lord. He's deeply concerned about those women who will be pregnant or nursing at that time. And and I think his concern is because of a couple of things. Obviously, because the child, which would normally be a source of joy, is going to make it more difficult for these women to run, to flee for their lives. As D. Edmund Hebert writes in his commentary, the time would turn the joy of motherhood into a pathetic handicap. The other, of course, reason to be seriously concerned about these women is, as history would say, if they're caught, then it would not go well for them or for their children. Verse 18, but pray that it may not happen in the winter. Those Christians alive and in Judea at 
that time should pray that the circumstances in which they have to flee will not be unnecessarily harsh and difficult. Matthew adds, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. That's not because it would be sinful for them to travel on the Sabbath, but because they would open themselves up to being stopped or even punished for breaking the Sabbath. Pray that it's not in winter. Winter could create problems in two ways. Obviously, the weather at night can be very cold in Israel. And the winter is their rainy season. That means that all the streams and the creeks would be filled with water and potentially even overflowing, making travel much more difficult. So Jesus says, pray that those hardships are not there. You know, just as an aside... I think it's interesting that Jesus urges Christians of that time to pray about the weather. Obviously, it reminds us that the weather is under the personal and constant care of God as He superintends the natural laws that He's put in place. But it also reminds us that God at times changes the weather and its patterns in response to the prayers of His people. The most graphic example, of course, is the prayer of Elijah in the Old Testament when he prayed that it would not rain and it didn't, and he prayed that it would and it did. But I think God responds to the prayers of his people as well, even if we're not Elijah. But back to our text, Jesus says that the final three and a half years of the tribulation will be a time of persecution for Israel, and especially for those in Israel who have become his followers. Those three and a half years are also described as a time of unparalleled tribulation. Look at verse 19. We read this earlier. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. The Greek word that's translated tribulation here, thlipsis, literally means a pressing together. Both this Greek word and the corresponding Hebrew word graphically picture a person who is first limited and then walled in and finally gradually squeezed until something has to give. It often speaks of the pressure that comes with persecution. This Greek word occurs some 16 times in the New Testament. Roughly 11 of those times, it has to do with this general sense of, of pressure from various issues in life, sometimes from persecution. But when the Greek word thlipsis is used in the study of last things, it refers to this future period of time. It's used this way five times in the New Testament, and two times... The adjective great is added to refer to the second half of that period of time. You can see it in Revelation 7, verse 14, we already looked at. And in Matthew 24, the parallel passage to Mark's Olivet Discourse, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The parallel to verse 19 here in our text. It really is reminiscent, our Lord's words are, of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And he goes on to detail some of what happens later in that chapter. It's about the same period of time. 
Now, notice again in verse 19 what Jesus says about this time. He says, there's never been a time like this since creation, not now, and there never will be apart from this one period of time. Jesus spoke these words in 30 AD, and nothing like he was describing had ever happened. And it'll only happen once in the future. What exactly will that tribulation look like? Read the sixth and seventh seals of Revelation, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. That tells you what that period of history will be like. It will be unparalleled in its pressure as God brings the pressure to bear and He begins to unleash the full pent-up fury of His holy anger. And although it will be horrific, it will be shortened for the elect. Look at verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. That's such an encouraging verse because as dark and as out of control as those times will appear, the sovereign Lord is still on His throne. In fact, the language implies that it was in the past that the Lord decreed to shorten those days. God determined in eternity past to artificially limit those days because if He didn't, no human life would be preserved. It would mean the destruction of the human race. And He decided to shorten them for the sake of His elect. The word simply means those whom He chose. And it's repeated for emphasis. Those whom He has chosen for salvation and for Himself. This refers to those whom He has chosen and who eventually come to genuine faith during the tribulation period and whom Antichrist has not yet killed. God's looking out for them even in the midst of pouring out His judgment on the unbelieving world. The great tribulation will also be filled with spiritual deception. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. Matthew adds, if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. You know what is remarkable to me about this text? Is how it shows the persistence of Satan in his agenda. Even as the second coming draws near, he will launch an all-out effort against Jesus' followers. Jesus' words here, by the way, even hint that these false Christs and these false prophets will infiltrate true believers, those who have fled for their lives. Even as they run and hide, Satan will relentlessly pursue them with lies designed to mislead them and perhaps even to flush them out of hiding. Verse 22 goes on to say, for false Christs, pseudo-Christs, those who claim to be the Messiah, notice it's plural, more than one, and false prophets, pseudo-prophets, literally, many who falsely claim to speak revelation from God will arise. And they will show signs and wonders. They will work signs and wonders. They'll work miracles. It's possible these will be done through deception, sleight of hand, 
It's also possible they'll be accomplished through the very real power of Satan. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 describes the man of lawlessness, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And read Revelation 13 and you read about the miracles of the false prophet, the religious head of that system that the Antichrist will set up. Now, why will Satan go to all this trouble? The chilling answer comes at the end of verse 22. In order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Still that late in human history, and with that few true believers still on the planet, those who've been saved during the tribulation period, he hopes to lead them astray. But don't you love those two little words, if possible? means it's not possible. It's impossible. Not going to happen. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, why shouldn't the Christians at that time believe those who say, the Messiah's over there, he's out in the wilderness, he's in this room, he's in this place. Why shouldn't they believe that? Well, listen to Matthew. Jesus added this statement in the Olivet Discourse, and Matthew records it for us. Matthew 24, 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Don't believe them when they say, oh, the Messiah's here and He's come secretly. You can go see Him. He's out in the wilderness. He's over here in this room. He's in this building. Don't believe that. When He comes, it'll be just like lightning. It'll be visible to everyone. When a bolt of lightning flashes across the night sky, everybody sees it. In the same way, when Jesus really returns, you won't miss it. When the second coming happens, you will know, everyone will know, and we'll see that unfold in the verses coming. What an amazing description of those three and a half years. Now, before we look at the application for us, I want you to notice the application for those believers who will be living in those times. Verse 23, but take heed... Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now remember, Jesus is talking to four of his apostles on Tuesday before his crucifixion. That raises a fascinating question. Why would Jesus tell the apostles this if they were not going to be there and he knew they weren't going to be there? Why would Jesus tell any Christians this if all Christians are going to be raptured before the tribulation? It's because, as we've already seen, there will be many who come to faith during the tribulation period. And this passage serves as a warning to help them. Beware, Jesus says. Be careful. I've told you everything in advance. Don't be duped. Don't be surprised. I've told you everything you need to know to keep you from being led astray. Think about this for a moment. Think about how encouraging this would be if you were one of those tribulation believers. If you had come to faith after the rapture, after the man of sin had been revealed, and you had turned to the Scripture, 
You'd come to genuine faith in Christ and as things began to unfold and as the world began to unravel and as God began to unleash the fury of His wrath against this planet, you read this sermon. And you came to what our Lord says. It would serve as a wonderful encouragement to you. God is still on His throne. History is unfolding just as Jesus said it would. But don't forget that this passage is helpful for all Christians, for all time, because prophecy serves a spiritual purpose even for those who won't experience its fulfillment. Why else, for example, would Isaiah prophesy the destruction of Judah by Babylon 150 years before it happened to people who wouldn't be there? It's because there are lessons to be learned. And that brings us to the question for us. How does this apply to us? We know how it applies, verse 23, to those who will be alive then. But what about for us? Well, there are many different ways, and I'm sure the Spirit will apply it in ways I haven't thought of to your heart and life. But let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, this passage reminds me that the justice of God demands that He deal with sin. He will judge the sin of the world as a whole in the tribulation period. He will literally unleash the full fury of His anger. Righteous, holy anger against sin. It has been pent up and stored, as Paul says in Romans 4, since the world was created, since He destroyed the world with a flood. But in that day, He will unleash it. He will also judge every sin of every single person. If you aren't in Christ, understand this. I I beg you to understand this. If you haven't genuinely come to faith in Christ, you will stand before Jesus Christ and you will experience the full fury of His wrath personally. That's why even during the tribulation, they, they try to hide in the rocks and the, and the caves of the mountains, Revelation tells us, to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. Look at what it looks like. Turn with, with me to Revelation chapter 20. Let me show you what it looks like on a very personal level. Verse 11 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. In other words, the universe as we know it implodes and is destroyed, and there's no place for them. In other words, at this moment, there is God, and there is every living being that He created, every intelligent living being He created. And in this case, it's those who haven't believed in His Son who stand at this judgment. I saw the dead, the great and the small, doesn't matter what your station in life is, standing before the throne, one by one, sinner after sinner, will stand before this majestic God and give an account. And the books were opened. 
The implication there, the scrolls were open, has to do with the divine records. Not that God needs written records. This is given to give us insight into the fact that God knows everything. He knows every secret thought you've had. He knows every act you've committed. He knows everything that's ever gone on in your life. And out of the knowledge that He has of your life, if you're not in Christ, you will be judged. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and grave gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Don't lose sight of the reality that our loving, gracious God who extends forgiveness in His Son is a God of impeccable holiness and unbending justice. And every single sin will be punished. Every sin. Not one sin you have ever committed will go unpunished. It will either be punished on Christ on the cross because you have embraced Him as Lord and Savior or it will be punished personally on you forever. There's a second lesson in this text and that is that God has graciously chosen some sinners who deserve His judgment for salvation. I love that text in Revelation 7 we looked at earlier where it says there's this huge crowd can't be numbered, a people from every tribe and tongue and people group on earth whom God has chosen for Himself and whom He redeems. You say, how can I be sure that I'm chosen? The answer to that is, are you willing to repent and believe? If you're willing to repent and believe, that's the assurance that you're chosen. Thirdly, I love this. Even as God judges the world for its rebellion, He continues to care for His own. He looks out for His own. He shortens the days for the sake of His own. He cares for them even in the middle of the outpouring of His wrath. They're sheltered, protected from that wrath. They may experience human persecution, but they will not suffer the wrath of God. As Paul says, Christ is the one who rescues us from the wrath that's coming. I told you this word tribulation is used in other contexts besides the seven-year period we've been talking about. I love this. Romans chapter 8, and look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation even during our own lifetimes we may and we will not go through the tribulation period because the rapture will occur first unless the lord takes us in death but even though we will not face that tribulation in our lifetimes we face a different kind of tribulation the pressure of all the things that happen in life and even during our own lifetimes Times of tribulation cannot separate us from the love of God.
even in the midst of tribulation, He shelters and cares for His own. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 12 of The Future According to Jesus. Tom will bring you part 13 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, we've learned God's truth about wrath, judgment, and the destruction of the world. But the story doesn't end there, does it? No, Bill, it certainly doesn't end there. In fact, as we've heard today, even those who are redeemed during that turbulent seven-year period, God will be faithful to them. He will rescue them and bring them into his eternal kingdom. Let me just urge you, friend, today, if you aren't sure that you really belong to Jesus Christ, don't wait. Don't waste any more time. Let today be the day that you repent of your sins and commit yourself to follow Jesus Christ, to recognize him as your true Savior and Lord, because then you won't have to look forward with fear toward those days. Instead, you'll look forward with anticipation that you will be in his presence, protected forever in his perfect eternal love. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.